All right, well, we're there in Genesis chapter number 14, and we're continuing through our series on, on, uh, on Sunday nights. We've been going through a series entitled The Patriarchs, and we're doing a study of the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and we're just walking through their lives and learning about them and making application. And here in chapter 14, we get into a really interesting uh, chapter. Basically, I'm not going to take the time to read through verses 1 through 9 again because I don't have to you know, uh, pronounce all those names, all right, if that's okay with you. But verses 1 through 9, we basically see the first mention of war in Scripture, in the book of Genesis, we come to this war, and it's kind of a world war. You know, you got all these kings that are joining together. You've got four kings on one side versus five kings on the other side. And, and I don't believe these were huge nations. They were probably what you and I would call today a city-state. But yet you've got these people basically fighting each other. And if you look at verse number 10, the Bible says, And the veil, you see that word veil, V-A- V-A-L-E there, that's an old way of saying the word valley. It's talking about the valley that they were fighting in. And the veil of Siddim was full of slime pits. And I want you to notice what the Bible says. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. So here's what I want you to say. You've got these kings that are fighting each other, and you've got the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah on one side, along with three other kings versus the other four kings, and they're fighting each other, and basically Sodom and Gomorrah lose the battle. This is before they were destroyed. We're going to get, that, get to that in Genesis 19 later on in the series, but they, they lose the battle, and if you remember, we saw in chapter 13 that Lot, remember Lot separated himself from Abraham, and he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Well, Lot is now living in Sodom, if you look at verse 12, and it says, And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, in his, and his goods, and departed. Now, keep your place there in Genesis 14. This is our text for tonight. But go with me to the book of James in the New Testament. If you start at the book of Revelation and move backwards, you're going to have Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd and 1st Peter, and then the book of James, all right? So you're going to have uh, Revelation, Jude, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 1st, 2nd Peter, and James. James chapter number 4. And you know I always try to help you out. When you get to James, keep your place there. We're going to leave it, and we're going to come back to that part of the Bible. So make sure you can get back to James. I want to give you just three points tonight, and they're not alliterated or anything, just kind of three, three thoughts about this passage and just things that we can learn from this passage. And the first thing that I want you to understand, the first lesson we can get from the story is this. When you choose to stand with the world, you will fall with the world. And you have, you have to choose a side. See, the Bible tells us here in Genesis 14 that Lot who we saw last week, so I'm not going to take the time to go through all those verses. Lot was a righteous man in the sense that he was saved. He was a believer. He was not right with God. He was not walking with God, but he was a saved man. And he was living in Sodom. And here's what I want you to understand. When Lot was living in Sodom, and Sodom fell, and they lost the war. The Bible tells us there in Genesis 14, 11, that they not only, I'm sorry, verse 10, it says that they fled and they fell there. And when Sodom fled and fell, guess what? Lot fled and fell with them. And you've got to choose a side. When you stand with the world, you will fall with the world. And and the Bible teaches this principle. Are you there in James chapter 4? Look at verse number 4. Let me show it to you 
from the book of James. God says it a little different in James, but I want you to notice what it says. He says, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Now remember, the book of James is written to believers, all right? He's talking to people that are saved, and he says, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Now that word enmity means to be actively opposed to, to be hostile with. And here's what he says. Don't you know, he's talking to believers. He's talking a lot. He's saying, don't you know that as soon as you align yourself with Sodom, as soon as you align yourself with Gomorrah, as soon as you align yourself with Egypt, whatever whatever example you want to use, as soon as you align yourself with the world, God says, hey, don't you know that friendship of the world is enmity, puts you in hostility, puts you in opposition with God. He says, whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And listen, that's not just for worldly people, that's for believers. If you as a believer, or or myself as a believer, if we choose to align ourselves, if we choose to cast our lot with the world, then here's what you've got to understand. We're not talking about salvation, all right? Once you're saved, you're saved. The Bible teaches eternal security. Salvation is not based on the way you live your life. That's work salvation. When you die, if you're a believer in Christ, you will go to heaven if you're not trusting in your works. But in this world, if you line yourself up with the world, you are basically making yourself an enemy or putting yourself at enmity with God, and you will fall with the world when the world falls. See, Sodom here fell, and because Lot was with them, Lot got caught up with that. Listen to me. You say, I'm a Christian. Yeah, but here's the thing. If you smoke like the world smokes, you'll get cancer like the world do people do. You can't, you can't say, well, God will protect me from cancer because I'm a Christian. No, no, no. When you line yourself up with the world, you're going to have the exact same results there. If you listen to what they teach about marriage, then you'll have a crummy marriage like the world has crummy marriages. If you listen to the way they teach to raise your children, then you'll have a bunch of rebellious kids just like the world has rebellious kids. Do you understand what I'm saying? If, if you decide, you know, forget what the Bible teaches about finances and I'll just start listening to the world and taking their advice on what to do with my money, then, then you're just going to suffer the same consequences that they suffer. Because even as a believer, even as a Christian, when Lot decided to cast his lot with Sodom, then he fell with Sodom. And you need to understand that in the Christian life, and I don't mean to keep, you know, uh, hitting this this point, but it's in the scripture, we're at war. I mean, we're in a spiritual warfare. It's all hands on deck right now. And I mean, Satan has his sights set on us and set on churches like us. and, And you cannot just live, you know, here's the thing. You can't be part of a battle and just kind of like, well, you know, I'm not really for or against anyone. I mean, could you imagine a soldier living during World War II? And it's like, well, you know, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm an American soldier, but I'm not really that against the Nazis. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? Like, when you're at battle, you got to decide what side you're on. And God, you know, here Lot had chosen to be with Sodom, and then God says, you know what, you're going to fall with Sodom. And I see so many Christians, they're saved, praise the Lord for it. They're justified, they're washed by the blood of the Lamb, whatever, whatever you want to call it, but they choose to line themselves up with the wrong side. And I'm just here to tell you, you will suffer those same consequences. Look, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a believer, young person. You say, I'm saved. If you choose to fornicate like the world fornicates, you're going to end up with STDs like the world ends up with STDs. Young ladies, you'll end up 
pregnant out of wedlock like the world. You say, well, I'm a Christian. It doesn't matter. When you become a friend of the world, you put yourself at enmity with God. So we must choose. You must decide where you will stand. Where, and here's the thing. If you decide to side with the world, then you will fall in the same way the world falls. And that's the first lesson we can learn from that. Lot here had, had aligned himself with Sodom. And when Sodom fell, Lot fell with them. Now notice, notice uh, go, go, keep your place there in James because we're going to come back to that side uh, of, of the Bible. But go back to Genesis 14. Look at verse number 13. And I'm not here to beat up on you or say, you know, I'm just trying, I'm just trying to help you because there are some times when we as Christians, you know, we decide like, well, I know the Bible says X, Y, and Z about whatever subject you want to be talking about, but I'm going to choose to ignore what the Bible says and I'm just going to do this because that's what my worldly friends told me to do or that's what my co-worker said or that's what, you know, the world advises. I'm just telling you, when you make a conscious decision, I'm going to go live in Sodom. I'm going to go live with the world. I'm going to align myself with the world. What you're deciding, you're choosing a side in the battle and you will suffer those consequences. So please understand that. Here's the second thing I want you to notice there in Genesis 14. Look at verse 13. I'm going to try to go quick tonight because we got cake and ice cream, all right? So we got we to get to that. That's important. Genesis 14, look at verse 13. And there came one that had escaped, escaped the battle where Sodom and Gomorrah fell and Lot fell with them, and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt... And by the way, this is the first time that Abram's referred to as a Hebrew in the Bible. Just, you know, if it makes a difference to you. It's just kind of an interesting fact. For he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abraham. Now I want you to notice verse number 14. And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, talking about Lot, I want you to notice this phrase. He armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. Now here's what's interesting. You've got five kings, five kingdoms with all their soldiers fighting four kings, four kingdoms with all their soldiers, and one side completely demolishes the other side. And then Abraham gets in the midst of this battle, and he's got 318 men. They pursued after them. And notice what the Bible says there in Genesis uh, uh, 14. Look at verse number uh, 15, Genesis 14 and verse 15. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and his women also, and the people. Now, you got to ask yourself this question How is it that Abraham, with 318, not soldiers, Trained servants that lived in his house. How was he able to go and fight against these kings and actually win the battle? And here's the answer to that. When God is on your side, you don't need numbers. I mean, if you remember Gideon, he had all these numbers and God said, no, 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 I just need 300 men. Because here's what you got to understand. The Bible says it promises that one man will chase a thousand. And, you know, here's the thing. You know, sometimes people say, like, well, do you really think you're going to make an impact with your little church? You know, you're, you're just few. But here's the thing. We don't, how many do we need? I mean, we don't need that many if God's with us and God's helping us. And here you see Abraham take his 318 men, and they were able to go do what four kings were not able to do, what five kings were not able to do, what multiple kingdoms were not able to do. But in this passage there in verse 14, I want you to notice that we find things to do to prepare for victory. 
See, here's the thing. Abraham had a good strategy. He went and fought them. He divided himself, and he, he surrounded them. But the reason that Abraham was able to win this battle is because there were things that he was doing for a long time before the battle came. Notice verse 14 again. And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants born in his own house. That the key to their success is right there. He armed his trained servants born in his house. Now, here's the thing. We're seeing that from the, 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 the result. The result is victory. But I want you to notice, it's not, it, it didn't go in that order. He armed his trained servants born in his house. That's how we see it from the victory standpoint. But here's how it started. He had people born in his house, and he trained those that were born in his house, and then he armed them to fight. That is the steps to prepare for victory. And here's what I want to tell you. If you and I and our church is going to win the battles that we're engaged in, if we're going to re- and, the, and we're in a spiritual warfare, remember that. We're, 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 we're fighting for men's souls. We're trying to get people saved. You say, how are we going to do that? Here's how we're going to do it. We're going to have to have some people born in our house. Amen. See, Abraham, he had men that were born in his own house. And it's interesting to me because did you keep your place there in James? Do you have your finger in James? Go, to the, go from James, go to the very next book, uh, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, and look at verse number 23. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23. 1 Peter 1 and verse 23, notice what the Bible says. Being, you've heard this phrase before, being born again. Do you, do you see that? Who's ever heard that phrase before, born again? You know, the Bible refers to salvation as being born again. And here it says being born again. Not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The Bible says that what you and I do is we take the word of God, which is the seed, and we go and we preach that. And then when people receive that seed, God labors and we labor together. And then that person is born again. They're born uh, into the family of God. Jesus would say, keep your place there in 1 Peter, all right? We're going to come back to it. Go to the book of John, though. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter number 3. You know the passage, famous passage. John chapter 3. Look at verse number 3. But make sure you're able to get back to 1 Peter or James, something around there. John chapter 3 and verse 3. Notice what the Bible says. Notice what Jesus said. Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again. Do you see that? He cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice verse 7. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Here, Jesus is teaching that what our job is to do is to go out and preach the gospel and have people born again. And I want you to notice in Genesis 14, the first step that Abraham took is that he had people born in his own house. And here's the thing the bible calls the church the house of god you say what is the strategy what is the plan how are we going to win how are we going to fight here's how we're going to do it we're going to go and have people born in our house you say what what how are we going to fight this battle how are you going to fight these sodomites and i'm not talking physically okay please we don't need to be on the news anymore you know how are we going to fight these agendas how are you going to fight these people you know how, how are we going to uh, 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 you know have Reach Natomas with the gospel of Christ. Here's how we're going to do it. But doing the same thing we've been doing is going and preaching the gospel and having people saved. We need them born in our house. We need to have 318 men born and women born, soldiers born in this house right here. 
See, it started with Abraham when he was having people born in his house. Now, now, now notice what it says. Okay, keep your finger there in John. You, you should have a finger in, in, in 1 Peter, and you should have a finger in John. Go back to Genesis 14. Look at the list, all right? Genesis 14. Look at verse 14, okay? He had, he had men born in his own house, right? But notice that wasn't it. They weren't just born in his house. They were also trained servants. You see that? See, it's not enough to have people be born again. We then have to take those people that have been born again, and we need to train them. He had people born in his house, but then he took those new babies, and he trained them as servants. Go, are you, did you keep your place in John? Can you go to Matthew? You're there in John, so you're just going to go backwards to the first book of the Bible. Matthew, look at the first book of the Bible, the last chapter, Matthew 28. Look at verse 19. I know you've seen these verses before, but let's look at them together. Matthew 28 and verse 19. Matthew 28 and verse 19. Look, our church is not very old. We're only five years old. We're only five and a half years old. And we've got a, a great crowd of, of, of believers, and God has blessed us with many people. But you say, well, what do we continue to do? I mean, what are we going to do? Is every sermon going to be anti the sodomites? And is every sermon going to be political? Or is every sermon going to be something that's going to get on the news? Listen to me, I'm not afraid of that. If they want to put us on the news and they want to protest us, that, that's fine. But that's not my goal. You say, what's your goal? Our goal is the same goal we've ever had. It's to see men and women be born again. But then look, we want to take those babies and train them. Because that's part of the Great Commission. Are you there in Matthew 28? Look at verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Notice verse 20. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you all way, even unto the end of the world. Amen. See, part of the battle is teaching them to observe all things. What is that? That's discipleship. That's training. And not just discipleship class, although we have a discipleship class that will go through and teach you all the fundamental truths, but it, it's teaching, you say, you know, because people sometimes they're like, well, I don't understand, why do you have to preach about the sodomites? Here's why, because we're supposed to be teaching them to observe all things. Amen. We're supposed to be teaching the whole counsel of God. That's why we preach about everything, you know. Every, that's why we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. We don't leave anything out. We, why? Because our job is not just to birth you. Our job is not just to get you saved. Our job is not just to get you born again. We're there supposed to take you and train you, disciple you, prepare you. Say, where did Abraham succeed? He succeeded when he had men who were born in his own house, but it wasn't just that they were born. He trained them. They were trained servants. Go, go, go back to Genesis 14. Look, look, look at what he says. They were born in his own house. They were armed. They, they were trained servants. But notice, it's not enough. It's not enough for them to be born again. And it's not enough for them to be discipled. Then notice what he says. He, he armed them. You see that? He armed his trained servants. See, they were born... They were trained, and then he puts a weapon in their hand and says, now go do something with what we trained you with. Do you understand that? Go to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. Look, you, you got to understand, we're in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual warfare. Today in America, we have Christians. Look, if you want a list, I'll give you the list. All right, I won't. I'm just kidding. But uh, unless you just come to me afterwards, you know, privately. But, you know, you want a list of the churches? I can, I can tell you of several churches in this city that would not disagree with our stance on homosexuality. In fact, there are Christians all over this city, all over the state, 
all over the country who agree with us. It's not that they're not saved. Oh, they're saved. It's not that they're not trained. They're trained. They know what the Bible says, but they're not willing to pick up a Bible and fight. They're not, they, they, they got trained, but they don't want to get armed for the battle. See, it's one thing to know what's right. It's another thing to preach it. It's one thing to know what's right. It's another thing to proclaim it. It's one thing to know what's right. It's another to get engaged in the battle and fight. See, Abraham had men that were born, but that wasn't it. He had men that were trained, but that wasn't it. He then puts a, he puts a weapon in their hand and says, let's go fight. Let's go do something with it. Are you there in Ephesians chapter 6? Look at verse 13. Ephesians 6.13. Ephesians 6.13, the Bible says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. Now, why would you put on armor if you're not going to go fight? God says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Don't forget your sword. Don't forget your weapon, which is the Word of God. And again, we're not talking about a physical battle. We're not talking about we're going to go start a militia. We're going to go get weapons. We're going to go march somewhere. No, no, no. We're talking about a spiritual fight where you arm yourself spiritually and you engage in battle. And you say, well, how do we engage spiritually in battle? Here's how you engage in battle. You're either preaching the gospel. You're either, here's, here's all it is. You're either reaching people or you're teaching people. Everything we do at Verity Baptist Church falls under these two categories. We're either reaching people or we're teaching people. On Saturday morning, guess what? We're reaching people. On Sunday night, we're teaching people. On Sunday morning, we're teaching people. On Wednesday night, we're teaching people. Discipleship class, we're teaching people. Thursday night, a group of people go out, they're reaching people. Saturday, we're reaching people. Sunday after church, we're reaching people. That's all we do. We reach, we teach, we, we, we get them born again, we get them trained, but that does nothing if we're not willing to stand up and fight. Amen. See, when Christians say, I believe everything you believe, but I'm going to bow out of this fight because I don't know about all this then it's worthless. Then it means nothing. See, Abraham was ready to win this battle because he was able to successfully do three things. Get them born, get them trained, and get them in the fight. And you and I have to do the same thing. We, we need to see people born again, absolutely. But look, we want new believers to come in our church. We want to get them saved, but we don't want to keep them as new believers. We want to train them. We want to teach them. We want to uh, uh, teach them to observe all things whatsoever. We want to arm them, and then we want to push them out in the fight. Say, I, I want to get involved in the fight. Join us out on soul winning. Amen. I want to get involved in the fight. You men, get up and preach on a, at a men's preaching night. Get up Amen. and preach on a Sunday night. Get, you know, you, if, you're, if you meet the qualifications, hey, let us send you out to go start a church in some city so you can do the same thing we're doing there. That's how you get engaged in the fight. You reach, you teach. And, 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 the, and it does no good to anyone to say, I have all this training and I have all this understanding and I know everything about the Bible or I know a lot about the Bible, but I don't want to fight. I don't want to get engaged. I want to stand on the sidelines. That will do nothing. See, the, the, the way to have victory is to get people born again, is to train them, and then push them into ministry. Push them into the fight. Push them in to get involved in doing something for the cause of Christ. So number one, if you can make your way back to, to make sure you have your place there. Keep your place in First Peter or James, something around there. But uh, go back to Genesis. The first thing we see is we see that when you stand with the world, you will fall with the world. You must choose a side. 
The second thing we see, though, in the story is that in order for, to prepare for victory, we need to get people saved, born again. We need to get people discipled as trained servants. And then we need to get, put a King James Bible in their hand, put the sword of the Spirit in their hand, and set them off to battle. And look, I, I, I hope that our church keeps growing. I hope that our church keeps reaching people. I hope that our, our, I hope that our church, I, I hope that one day it would be said of Verity Baptist Church that Pastor Jimenez got up and said something controversial and said something that wasn't, you know, politically correct. And all these people decided to do a protest and there was more people in the building than there was out. I'll, that'd be great. You know, a thousand protesters showed up, but there was 1,200 in the service. Hey, wouldn't that be wonderful? And you say, well, well, we're not there. Yeah, we're only five years old, but why don't we get more people saved? Why don't we get more people trained? Why don't we get more people engaged in the battle? Let me give you the third statement, the third lesson. Are you there in Genesis 14? Look at verse number 15. Genesis 14 and verse 15. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus, And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. Now notice verse 17. I want you to notice, and the king of Sodom. You see that? The king of Sodom went out to meet him after he returned from the slaughter of Kedoleomer of the kings that were with him in the valley of Sheba, which is the king's dale. And then notice this, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine and he was the priest of the Most High God. Abraham returns from the slaughter, and two kings come and meet him. One is the king of Sodom. One is the king of Salem. And, the, and, and you know, it goes back to this idea. In the Christian life, you're going to have to decide who you serve. The king of Salem represents the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I believe Melchizedek is the Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. a pre incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to show you that, why I think that in the Bible. But you've got the king Melchizedek, who represents the Lord Jesus Christ, who represents God. And then you've got the king of Sodom, who represents the world. You know, the kings of these false nations would often, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, represented the world. It, what they represent is the king of this world, Satan. And you, here's what you got to say. you got two kings who are interested in you. The king of Sodom, the king of Salem. The king of the world, the king of heaven. God Almighty, God, the Lord Jesus Christ, or Satan himself. You're going to have to choose which one you want to serve. Now, let me, let me just get into, the, into talking about Melchizedek. And, um, you know, we're, we're going to do a little bit of Bible study here, try to figure out who Melchizedek is. And I want to, I, 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 you know, there's a lot of controversy about Melchizedek, and I'm not interested in arguing. If you have a different belief, it's, it's not a big deal. But uh, I personally believe Melchizedek is, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how can that be if Jesus wasn't born till the New Testament? But here's the thing. Jesus wasn't physically born until the New Testament, but the Lord Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He's always existed. And in John 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then we're told later on in that chapter that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So Jesus has always existed. He, he's never created. He's God. Now, He was born in the flesh in the New Testament, but I believe here, and there are other passages in the Bible where, where you will find that basically Jesus 
appears in the flesh, and I think Melchizedek is one of these examples. Let me explain to you why I think Melchizedek is, is, is that example, all right? Here's the first thing. Look, look at Genesis 14, look at verse 18, all right? Notice this, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, okay? Number one, he was a king, okay? Now, he's the king of Salem. Salem, the city that he's a king there, is basically Jerusalem. That's where you get the name, you know, they, they, later they add the, the, the term Jeru before Salem, but Jerusalem is uh, talking about Salem here. He's a king. The word Salem means peace, all right? The, 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 the Jews, you know, those who speak Hebrew will, will greet each other by saying Shalom, which is the same root word as Salem, which means peace. So you've got Melchizedek here, and, and I, you don't have to go back to the Hebrew to figure that out. The book of Hebrews tells us that he's the king, that he's, uh, that he's the king of righteousness and the king of, of peace. So here's the thing. Jesus is called the what? The prince of peace. And here's the thing about Jesus. He was a king, okay? Keep your finger there, Genesis 14. You should have your place somewhere in James, all right? But go to the book of Revelation, all right? Let's just run some verses, do a little bit of Bible study. you got to earn the, the cake and ice cream, okay? Or you, we don't just give it away. you got, you got to earn it, all right? We're, we're studying the Bible. You guys, I liked it when you were just yelling about the Sodom. I know, but we got to get back to, like, just Bible study, all right? <laughs> Revelation 19. Revelation 19, look at verse 16. Revelation 19 and verse 16. Revel, I'm sure we'll have many, many years of yelling about the Sodomites. Don't you worry. Revelation 19 and look at verse 16. Notice what the Bible says about Jesus. And he that hath on his vesture and on his thigh, and if you look at the context, you'll know this is the Lord Jesus Christ, a name written. Notice this is what Jesus called. King of kings and Lord of lords. Okay? So Jesus is a king. And we're told that he's the prince of peace. And don't get too caught up. You say, well, is a king different than the prince? Look, we're, we're not living in Renaissance time, okay? You know, the, the word prince basically means like principality. comes from the same word. talks about a leader, all right? So he's the leader of righteousness. He's a leader of peace, all right? Now, now, go to the book of Hebrews. Did you keep your place in 1 Peter? If you kept your place in 1 Peter, you're going to just go past the book of James into the book of Hebrews. Now, we're going to be in Hebrews for a while, so just make sure you can, you can lose your place in 1 Peter and just make sure you're able to get to Hebrews, all right? So um, if, you're go, if you're going backwards, going backwards from 1 Peter, you're going to go past James into the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, okay? Now, here's what's interesting. Now, you should have your place there in Hebrews 4. Go back to Genesis 14 just real quick and look at what the Bible says, all right? Look at verse 18. And Melchizedek... King of Salem, so you got Melchizedek, who's a king, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Do you see that? So he's not only a king, he's also a priest. Now, what's interesting about that is later on, when Moses gives us the Mosaic Law or the Levitical Law, it's actually forbidden that a king be a priest. And in fact, in the Bible, you had a king who tried to do the duties of a priest, and he was punished as a result of it. God wanted a separation between the priesthood and the, king, uh, the, the, the line of kings. He wanted that kind of separation of powers. But here you have Melchizedek, who's both a king and a priest. Well, guess what? The Lord Jesus Christ is the king of kings, but guess what? The Lord Jesus Christ is also the high priest. Are you there in Hebrews 4? Look at verse 14. Hebrews 4. 
Look at verse 14. The Bible says, seeing then that we have a great high priest. Because remember, he's the king of kings. He's also the greatest priest. He's also the greatest high priest. Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. So here's the thing. We have Melchizedek, who's a king. We have Melchizedek, who's also a priest. We have Jesus, who's a king. We have Jesus, who's also a priest. But there's more. Okay, keep, keep your place there in Hebrews. Go back to Genesis 14. Notice what the Bible says about Melchizedek. Genesis 14, look at verse 18 again. Genesis 14 and verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Now notice what Melchizedek does in verse 19. And he blessed him, talking about Abraham, and said... Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Now, here's what's interesting. Melchizedek blesses Abraham, who's a man. All right? But then notice what he does in verse 20. And blessed, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. So here's what's interesting. Melchizedek's a king. He's also a priest. But guess what? He's also a mediator. He blesses Abraham, who's a man, and then he blesses God. He mediates between God and man. He, 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 he ministers to Abraham, and then he ministers to God. Go to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter number 2. If you have your place in Hebrews, if you're going backwards, you're going to go past Philemon, past Titus, past 2 Timothy, into 1 Timothy. Notice what the Bible says. 1 Timothy, chapter 2, and verse 5 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The Bible teaches that the only one who can mediate between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. By the way, that's why we don't believe in, in, in having a priesthood today in the, in the sense of like, like the Catholic Church will have a priest that will mediate between you and God and you confess your sins to that man and that he'll pray to God on your behalf. The Bible, that, that's heresy. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I don't have to go to a priest today. I can go directly to the Lord Jesus Christ and he mediates on my behalf. You understand that? The Catholic Church calls uh, Mary the mediatrix. They say that she mediates between, uh, between man and, and God. And, and, if, and if you pray to Mary, then she'll try to persuade, you know, God on your behalf. That is unscriptural and it's illogical. You know, my, my son right now is going through some health issues. And we're having to take him to the doctor. And we found this great doctor. If anybody needs a doctor, let us know. We found this great doctor who, she's a Christian. I, I'm not sure if she's... You know, she's probably not a fundamental Baptist, you know, but she's a Christian, and she's just totally into, like, natural type things, and she's not, she's just been really good to us. But could you imagine if we, if we went to the appointment, and they were like, hey, listen, um, the doctor's not here today. She can't see you, you know, for your appointment, but we have, you know, what we have is her mom's here. You want to talk to her mom? It's like, you know, it's like, well, is she a doctor? You know, like, uh, no. You know, uh, well, well, the mom can, 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 can uh, talk to the daughter who's the doctor and, and she'll get you the help. Hey, no, I just need the doctor. 
You know what I mean? And today you got people teaching like, oh, just pray to Mary. I don't need to pray to Mary. I want to pray to God. I want to pray to Jesus. There's one mediator between God and men. I don't need a man. I don't need a priest. I don't need a saint. I don't need anything. I can go directly to God in prayer through the Lord Jesus Christ. And here you got Melchizedek, who's blessing Abraham, ministering to Abraham, and then he's blessing God and ministering to God. And think about this. The book of Hebrews says that the one who gives the blessing is greater than the one who receives the blessing. Okay? So, you know, in the Bible... Like a father would bless a son, a son would not bless a father. Because the greater is, the lesser is blessed of the greater. And we're taught this in this passage. We're taught Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Well, guess what? You've got Melchizedek blessing God. So what does that mean? Here's what I think it means, that he was equal with God, just like Jesus Christ. So, you know, again, you know, you're just seeing. We, so, so here's the thing. We have... Melchizedek, who's a king, we have Jesus, who's a king. We have Melchizedek, who's a priest, we have Jesus, who's a priest. We have Melchizedek, who's a mediator between God and men, we have Jesus, who's a mediator between God and men. So, you know, those are a few reasons there that kind of explain a little bit of why I believe Melchizedek is Jesus. But let me give you just the one, the point, the the main reason why I believe Melchizedek is Jesus. Go to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter number 7. You should have already been in Hebrews in chapter 4, so just look at chapter 7. Melchizedek is mentioned throughout the book of Hebrews. But in Hebrews chapter 7, we see this. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1. The Bible says, for this Melchizedek, because in Hebrews 7, he's talking about what we're reading about in Genesis. He says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. Okay, we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. First being by interpretation, notice, king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. That's what I'm telling you. You don't have to go back to the Hebrew. The the Bible defines itself, all right? Here the Bible tells us king of Salem means he's the king of peace. Notice verse 3. Now notice, He's describing Melchizedek. Notice what he says about Melchizedek. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth and priest. Continue. Now, how many men do not have a father, do not have a mother, do not have a descendancy, are neither, have neither beginning of days nor end of life? Who would fit that bill? One person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. That's Jesus. You know, so I personally, I think it's really clear that Melchizedek is just a Old Testament appearance, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. But let me tell you, let me give you the one reason why people will say, no, it's not Melchizedek. All right. He's not Jesus. Are you there in Hebrews 7? Look at verse 3 again. Without father. And by the way, God has no father and God has no mother. Mary, people say, Mary the mother of God. No, Mary is not the mother of God. Mary physically gave birth to the body of Christ that God, you know, uh, was in. But she, she did not give birth to God. God already existed, all right? So it says there, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither the beginning of days nor end of life, 
And people will look at this phrase, but made, notice these words, like unto the Son of God. And they'll say, see, he's not the Son of God, he's like unto the Son of God. And they'll say, so that proves that he's not Jesus. Okay, but here's the thing. you got to understand, the way things were worded back when our King James Bible was translated is different than maybe the way you and I would word certain things, okay? Because definitions and the, the phrases that we use change. So here it says that he was made like unto the Son of God, and people would say like, well, he's like the Son of God. He's not the Son of God. Okay, but let me show you why that's not true. Go to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 11. We're, we're almost done, all right? I promise we won't be very long, and we'll get, we'll get into the fellowship, all right? Revelation, chapter 1, look at verse 11. Revelation, chapter 1, verse 11. Revelation 1, 11. Notice, now, who has a red-letter edition Bible? Anybody have a red-letter? Okay, a lot of you do. All right. So in your red-letter edition Bible, the, the words that are in red letters... They're in red letters because Jesus is speaking, all right? And in the book of Revelation, you'll find that in the first three chapters, you have a lot of red letters because Jesus, this is after he already ascended, but he comes back and he appears to John and he's speaking to John, all right? So this is Jesus again speaking. Notice what the Bible says. Revelation 1, look at verse 11. Saying, this is Jesus, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And in the next couple of chapters, he's addressing all of those churches. And there's so much great doctrine in those. You know, one of these days, we're going to do a series just preaching through the seven churches of Revelation that are mentioned there, because there's a lot of great things. But Jesus is speaking to them. Now, notice verse 12. And I turn to see... The voice that spake with me. This is John, because Jesus just spoke to him, and he turns around, and he looks at Jesus, and he's describing for us what he saw. He says, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, let me explain something to you. No one argues that Revelation chapter 1 is Jesus. No one argues that. The reason that the red letters are there, because everybody agrees that is Jesus appearing to John. Look at verse 13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, he's describing what he saw. He says, one like unto the Son of Man. Do you see that? So look, we know it's Jesus, but he still said that he's like unto the Son of Man. And that just proves that when Hebrew says that he's like unto the Son of God, which those two terms are used of Christ, that he's the Son of God and he's the Son of Man. The fact that it says like unto is not saying that it's not him. He's saying It's just a different wording from a different time where they're saying it is him. Notice what he says, verse 13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paths with a golden girdle. He's describing how he saw the glorified Christ. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. Can you imagine seeing that? Jesus, you know, this is better than X-Men, all right? Jesus, his eyes are like fire. His his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. Uh, l- 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 look at um, l- look at verse 15. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun, shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. That's Jesus. And he's described as like unto the Son of Man. So, you know, again, I'm just explaining to you why I believe Melchizedek 
is Jesus in the Old Testament? You may disagree with that. That's no big deal. We don't, you know, we don't have to argue about that. You can, you can, unless you want to, you know, I'm, but, you know, let's not do that. I'm just kidding. But, um, you know, I've known a lot of people who are great people, saved people who say, I don't think Melchizedek is Jesus. That's fine. It's not a big deal. I just wanted to explain to you why I think it is. He is, but go back to Genesis 14. Let me sh- show you something else. So we saw what I believe, in my opinion, the pre-incarnate Christ. I want to show you something else that's pre in this chapter. We see a pre-law mention of tithing. Notice Genesis 14 and verse 20. And he blessed, and blessed be the most high God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. All right? Today you've got Christians, and especially in our movement, you've got people that are trying to get attached to like our movement who are teaching that tithing is unscriptural. There's this guy in, in a Washington, I think he's in Washington, his name is Afsham. I don't know if that's his name. It sounds like a mop head to me, but anyway, you know, Afsham. Isn't there like a mop or a guy that named Afsham that sold mops? Something like that. Anyway, this guy, you know, he's like trying to get people in our movement to quit believing in tithing. And the only reason I'm mentioning in my name is because I guess somebody told me this week he like made this video against me or something. And he's like siding with the sodomites. And I, I've, I, I've only listened to this guy talk for like 10 seconds. One time, my wife and I were looking at something, and we accidentally clicked on his video. And the guy sounds like an effeminate sodomite. So it doesn't surprise me that he's siding with the sodomites. You know? Let me just go ahead and say that just so that I can. Just, it's just therapy for me. It just makes me feel better. But anyway, these people are teaching. They're teaching that tithing is not part of, you know, as New Testament believers, we shouldn't do it. And here's their number one reason. They'll say, tithing is part of the Mosaic law. And the law was done away with, which is not true. We're going to talk about that on Sunday. But they're like, the law was done away with, so we don't have to tithe anymore. Well, here's what's funny about that. In Genesis 14, we have Abraham tithing to Jesus hundreds of years before the Mosaic law. So how can, the, how can tithing be done away with with the law, which is not even true? But even if it was true, how can tithing be done away with the law when you have Jesus? And we'll see later on, Jacob are both practicing Tithing before Moses and before the Mosaic law. So again, we just see, uh, so don't tell, tell me tithing is part of the law. Read the book of Genesis. Here you have, you know, Abraham tithing. And that's another reason why I believe it's Jesus. Because who do you give the tithe to? The church. Well, what's the church? The body of who? Christ. So you got, you know, Abraham tithing to the body of Christ, Melchizedek. And, uh, and he gave, notice verse 20, he gave him tithes of all. Don't let people try to, you know, just tell you, oh, tithing's not part of the, tithing's part of the Levitical law. If it's part of the Levitical law, why is it mentioned in Genesis 14? And it's mentioned later on in the book of Genesis also because Jacob also tithes uh, to God. And we'll see that when we get to it. Look at verse 21. And the king of Sodom said unto Abraham, give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. Okay, so we got two kings, right? One is the king of Salem, Melchizedek. I believe it's Jesus Christ. But even if you don't agree with me that's Jesus, we should all agree that he at least is representing the Lord Jesus Christ and God. And then on the other side, you got the king of Sodom, who represents the king of the world. And by the way, the king of the world right now is not God. It's Satan. He is the, he is the, he's the one running this world right now. 
God is in control of everything, but right now the world is controlled. The king of Sodom, the king of Egypt, the king of the United States of America, they're all controlled by the same Satan, all right? That's why they all have the same agenda. And, and here's the thing. I want you to notice the agenda of Satan has always been the same. Notice Genesis 14, verse 21. And the king of Sodom said unto Abraham, notice what he says. Give me the persons. Because remember, Abraham just came back from the slaughter, right? Abraham just got done defeating the kings that he could not defeat. He comes back with all the people and all the goods. And notice what the king of Sodom, the, the offer that he puts out there. He says, give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. He says, give me the persons and you keep the money. He said, give me the persons and I'll make you rich. And listen to me. That's the offer that the king of Sodom is making today. Did you know that? You know that the king of Sodom offers to every pastor in America? You know the offer he gives? He says, hey, you give me the people. You make sure you don't preach anything controversial. You make sure all your sermons are shallow. You make sure your people are like Lot and they're living in Sodom. You make sure your people are worldly. You make sure your people are not trained. You make sure your people are not discipled. You make sure your people aren't engaged in battle. You make sure your people are like these idiots out there who think that the Bible is just about love and there's nothing ever negative in the Bible. Ever. You, here's, what Sodom, here's what the king of Sodom says to preachers all across America. You give me the people and I'll make you rich, Joel Osteen. I'll make you rich, Billy Graham. I'll make you rich, Rick Warren. You just make sure I get the people. I'll give you all the goods you need. That's the offer the king of Sodom's always been giving. That's the offer he's giving right now. And it's not just preachers. He tells, he'll tell you, hey, give me the people, and I'll give you the money. You know, we've had, we haven't had that many people quit our church over this whole Sodomite thing. But I'll tell you this. The people that have quit the church, you know why they quit the church? One reason, money. Because they were afraid they might possibly lose their job. You know what Sodom was saying in their ear, the king of Sodom? He was saying, hey, give me the people and I'll give you the money. You go take your family off to some shallow, limp-wristed, liberal church. Make sure your kids never hear biblical preaching. Make sure your wife never hears the Bible preach. You give me the people and I'll keep you comfortable. I'll keep you wealthy. That's the offer the king of Sodom's always been giving. And you know what? I've said this a million times from this pulpit. Every time you make a decision based on money, you will make the wrong decision. And people will even leave, they'll leave churches and say, well, I'm going to leave the good church I'm at, and I'm going to go, you know, because they offered me this great job. And it's like, well, is there a good church over there? Well, no, but the job is good. You know what the king of Sodom is saying? Give me the people. I'll give you the money. That's the offer he gives. And look, as Christians, we need to decide, am I going to serve the king of Salem or am I going to serve the king of Sodom? Am I going to serve God or mammon? God or money? Because the offer is this, give me the persons and I'll, and go ahead and you take the goods. Now notice, notice the response of Abraham. Thank God for Abraham. Look at verse 22. And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine eyes, my, my hands unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. Notice what he says, verse 23. I will not take from, uh, from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take any, uh, any thing that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abraham rich. He said, I won't take anything from you. 
Because I don't want you to say that you made me rich. When I was a kid, we used to sing, we should sing it at our church. Maybe we'll get the word. We used to sing this song. I'm standing on the rock of ages, safe from all the storms that rages, rich but not from Satan's wages. I'm standing on the solid rock. You know what Abraham was saying? I don't, I don't want to be rich while working for you, Sodom. I, I don't want you to say that you've made Abraham rich. He said, I don't want your money. I won't take anything from you. He said, I won't take a shoe latchet from you. And he said, you know, keep your money. And look, as Christians, you and I have to get to the place where we're willing to say, hey, if I'm rich, it'll be because God blessed me, not because I sold out to King, to King of Sodom, not because I sold out to the world. And notice, notice the, the, the first verse of Genesis 15. We're going to look at Genesis 15, 1, and then we'll look at Matthew, and we'll finish up, okay? Notice the first, because he says, I don't want anything from you. I don't want you to say that you've made Abraham rich. And then notice Genesis 15, 1. Genesis 15, 1. After these things, after what things? After Abraham said, hey, Sodom, get out of here. Keep your stinking job if you're going to fire me for standing for the word of God. God will take care of me. And notice what Genesis 15, 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. He said, you know what? You know what, Abraham? Tell Sodom to take a hike with their job and, and anything else they want to give you. And God says, I'll take care of you. He said, I'll be thy exceeding great reward. Go to Matthew 19. We'll be done right here. Matthew 19, verse 28. Matthew 19, verse 28. Because here's the thing. You and I get really self-righteous about, well, all, all the sacrifices I have to do for God. Look, you ain't sacrificed nothing for God. He gave the ultimate sacrifice when he died on the cross for our sins. You know, if you lose your job, don't, I, you know, I mean, think about how silly you would feel walking up to Jesus. Well, you know, I had to lose my job. I mean, Seriously? It's like, okay, you know I died and went to hell for you? You know, well, you know, my family, they said mean things to me. Okay, so did mine. You know, that's what Jesus would say. Matthew 19, look at verse 28. Matthew 19, verse 28. Notice what Jesus said. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration. What is that? Regeneration is being born again. That's what that term means. When the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He's talking about to the twelve apostles, the twelve disciples. Look at verse 29. And everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or fathers, or mothers, or wife, or children, or lands. I like this list because it just covers everything. He's like, cats, dogs, you know what I mean? He's adding all, all, everything. Notice, for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold. You know what hundredfold means? Hundred times as much. God says, whatever you sacrifice on this earth, I'll give you a hundred times as much in heaven, in eternity. And he says, and by the way, you'll also inherit eternal life, everlasting life. And you get to go to heaven. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Listen to me. There are many Christians on this earth that they look like they just got it all put together. They live on the nice side of town. They drive the nice vehicle. You look at their family, you're like, oh, they look like they got it all put together. But you know what? In heaven, they will be last. They will be least. God says the first shall be last. And he says on this earth, 
The ones that everyone looks at us and say, you're such a reproach. You're such an embarrassment. You know, all the emails I'm getting, you're so wicked. You're this, you're that. God says, you know what? In heaven, the last shall be first. And just don't. You know, when the king of Sodom offers you money for people, when the king of Sodom offers you money to sell out your family or to sell out a church, we need to be like Abraham and say, you know what? I don't want nothing from you. I don't, I don't want you to say that you have made Abraham rich. And by the way, if Verity Baptist Church succeeds, I don't want anyone to say, oh, it's because they backed down on that whole Sodomite thing. You know what? God is our exceeding great reward. God will bless us. God will pay us. God will make it up to us. So just three things that we can see from this passage. Number one, when you stand with the world, you will fall with the world. You've got to make a choice. Number two, Things that we need to do to prepare for victory is get people born again, get people trained, put a weapon in their hand, spiritually speaking, and send them off to battle. And in our Christian life, you and I have to decide, are we serving the king of Sodom or are we serving the king of Salem? Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father.